Welcome to Making of a Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be talking about an invention, one of the most important inventions that we have in Western society. It dominates almost every single thing that we do with other people. And I think it's one of the causes of the spread of Western culture all around the world. But I don't think that you appreciate it as an invention. We can't point to a particular inventor who dreamt it up, and I don't think that there's a patent in any patent office around the world that uh, uh, describes what this invention does. We're going to be talking about the invention of politeness. But before we do that, I need to put everything into context, and to do that, I'm going to start with the invention of something that's far more familiar. Uh, this invention is in almost every single textbook about European history. It is the invention of the movable type printing press in the 16th century. This was important because it allowed people to make a lot of books cheaply and reliably. And this led to a whole bunch of discussion about topics that previously people had not been discussing. People talked about religion, politics, science, and I'm going to be describing something good, right? No, I'm not. The creation of the printing press and the development of, of new forms of discussion actually led to hundreds of years of brutal disagreement, bloodshed, civil war, and international conflict. There were hundreds of years of wars of religion that followed the printing press that decimated uh, European society. It was brutal and awful, and nobody liked it. Now, one of the reasons why this happened was because people got more information, they were able to debate things that previously had not been up for debate, and then there formed a bunch of different sides about these topics that people previously had not cared about, and then the sides got really pissed off with one another because the other side was wrong, and, you know, what did you do? Well, you picked up a sword and you killed him. And this happened over and over and over again. And there were a bunch of different solutions to this problem that developed uh, through these centuries of war and disagreement. One idea came from the Peace of Augsburg, uh, and it is chaos regio, as religio. Uh, this is a fancy Latin term, which means whose realm, whose religion. And I'll just, you know, translate that even more. The prince decides what religion the region is. And it's obvious why this should help to tamp down conflict, because it means that the only thing that matters is the religion of the prince. Once you get that locked down, then you don't need to worry about internal uh, discussions amongst the populace. And it worked for the most part. Another solution uh, was something that was called the, the various religious reformations of the early modern period. You get the Protestant Reformation and also the Catholic Reformation. And these, in their own ways, sought to get everybody on the same page about what religion was by educating people, by reforming rights, uh, by uh, uh, exerting central control over things that had not gone, uh, been controlled before. Um, you get uh, priests and parishioners both held to new standards of religious authority. You get the Catholic Church sending out uh, people into towns to make sure that the priest isn't like married or drunk or not doing the proper rites. And you get 
uh, something that is not very good, which is the Inquisition, which has priests going out into the countryside and making sure that people have the right ideas in their heads and that they're not saying the wrong ideas. Another solution was just, you know, toleration. Um, and in this, we can see uh, the people in the, the Dutch Netherlands as maybe the biggest exemplars of it. Uh, and a great symbol of this is the secret churches of Catholics in, in, in Holland. So Holland was a Calvinist state. Uh, there was a Calvinist state church, which meant that the government actually funded and ran churches. Um, but even though Catholicism was explicitly barred, it was explicitly illegal, over time, there developed ways for Catholics to pr uh, uh, worship in private. These were house churches. From the outside, they looked like a house, but when you walked into them, they were actually churches that had priests and held masses and did all the things that one would do in a church. The idea was that Catholics could go to them and worship as long as they didn't do it too publicly. The idea of this kind of toleration was not the kind of toleration that you or I might have where we think that we should understand and respect everybody as equal members of the public sphere, but it instead was a kind of toleration more like don't ask, don't tell. You can do whatever you want as long as I don't see it. But we're going to be looking at a different form of solution to this problem of constant disagreement. And this is something that I think is one of the most important technological developments in the modern world, politeness. And we're going to be, of course, talking about politeness in Britain, because that's the place that I study. So some context. In the 17th century, Britain was destroyed by a series of civil wars that centered on politics and religion. And you can imagine this, a bunch of weird people argued about uh, odd topics in public and got into huge fights. Uh, one of the first battles of the Civil War was one of these centralizing attempts. Uh, uh, the, the king wanted to make sure that everybody was practicing religion in a similar way, and so they sent off a book of common prayer for the Scottish church to follow, and the Scottish church was not happy about it, and it led to uh, that king getting his head chopped off. But there's more than just this political wrangling. There was also a bunch of sectarian developments, people who decided that they knew what was best about religion and uh, following it oftentimes in quite uncomfortable and difficult ways. Imagine, of course, the Puritans, this central idea of American history, these odd-looking people coming over from Britain to America. Now, why did they come over from Britain to America? Well, because they were annoying and nobody liked them and they wanted them to go somewhere else so that they could practice their weird and uncompromising religion out of the view of, every, you know, of all the normal people. And because of this public debate that was spurred by uh, 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 new kinds of, of publishing, there was lots of fighting. Not just big, large-scale civil war fighting, but just people were, you know, getting into fights on the street and then stabbing each other because everybody was wearing swords. I want to argue that the solution that developed over the 18th century was really important to developing this kind of urban sociability that is essential to modern Western society. And that solution was politeness. 
old forms of gentility, old forms of status, you know, that, that 17th and 16th and 15th century people would have been familiar with, identified status as display. If you are rich and wealthy and on top of the great chain of being, then you have rich and wealthy and awesome clothing and you comport yourself, you know, by the finest rules of etiquette that are educated in the finest courts of Europe, um, and you are less high status uh, the further you fall from conformity to this particular elite set of standards. This is centered around the court. Uh, it is centered around imitation of the king and the French king and, you know, fashion leaders, and it is based on display. Politeness was very different. At best, the idea of politeness was not about following a list of rules about how you should act. Instead, it was about developing an inner civility that allowed you to deal with people in an easygoing way. This inner civility expressed itself in an outer civility that was intensely flexible. Now, this form of politeness was based around urban life. It was based around hanging out with people in public and talking with them. And through talking with them politely, through listening to them, through formulating your own opinions and your own jokes and your own discussions so that you could be pleasing to the other person, politeness was meant to civilize not only the individual, but also the society that the individual was part of. If everybody got together in a mutually pleasing form of public social interaction, then everybody would be better off. Everybody would be more civilized. Everybody would be more peaceful. We can imagine this as an attitude that helped people deal with the problems of the confusing and anonymous city. Think about how you interact with the city. Every day that you go out in the city, you find hundreds, if not thousands of strangers on just a simple walk to work. And if you discussed with these strangers with your full, passionate, you know, uh, 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 truthful and, 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 and eager opinions, you might get into fights. If I stopped every asshole that I saw on Facebook and wrote to them urgently about how everything that they were saying was wrong, I would be, you know, flame-warring every single person on my newsfeed. Similarly, if you're at a bar and just express your opinion without modifying it, you might get into fights. But this is what people did in the 17th century. In the 17th century, you did not modify your emotions. You let them run free. You did not modify your opinions. They were there, yours. Instead, politeness suggested that you hold yourself in check, that you restrain yourself from enthusiasms, that you make sure to moderate your own conduct and in turn help to moderate the conduct of the people around you. We can imagine this in uh, polite attitudes, polite uh, gestures, in polite ways of eating, in wit, conscientiousness, flexibility. And the idea was that taking these external attitudes would help you become moral as well. And this created a new form of status, a new form of status and masculinity based around polite conversation with others. This helped 
a new kind of political group to form, the political group that formed around the urban centers of London, these coffee houses and financial offices and insurance agents and traders who we've discussed many times before on this podcast, the people who formed the new power block of the giant pool of money. They were not necessarily landowners. They were not members of the old nobility. They were not decked out in the finest pearls. Instead, they were more middle class. They were more urbane. And this way of creating a new form of status centered around urbane uh, attitudes helped them create new forms of political legitimacy. Now, I want to keep on stressing to you guys that there is no culture without objects, that there is no cultural and social change without changes in the material world, and politeness, even though it seems like something that's very interior, is no different. There's a bunch of objects that we can imagine as carrying, you know, the operating system of politeness along with them. One of the biggest is the magazine, the newspaper, the news sheet. At around the uh, uh, early 18th century, there was the spread of a bunch of urbane, polite magazines that people read in coffee houses and then read in clubs. This was the material uh, 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 vector of politeness. People read these things and they learned how to talk with one another politely. They offered models of polite conversation. Similarly, we can look at something we've talked about before in this podcast, the three-piece suit, as something that also held these polite standards of conduct. Why? Well, because the three-piece suit, even though you could deck it out in awesome ways and use, you know, awesome, you know, foreign materials to it, it had the same cut, no matter how rich you were. A middle-class person could have the same kind of suit as an upper-class person, and a lower-class person could also participate in this as well. It was open to more people. It was also more controlled. You showed your status not by, you know, decking yourself out in tons of rings or getting crazy stuff like that, but rather by getting better materials, better cuts, more restrained and stylish innovations. And it also spread through cool consumer goods. Remember when we talked about how the Industrial Revolution produced not just cheaper goods, but also goods that came with them with a kind of new cultural cachet, and that this cultural cachet was one that expressed Britishness as something that was, you know, anti-aristocratic, something that was scientific, something that was new. Well, these new kinds of consumer goods like Wedgwood pottery and toy buckles also came with this sense of politeness, of participating in this urban, antique, and refined way of consuming and being. And of course, there's a bunch of impl implements of civilization, the fork, the nightdress, the handkerchief, the chamber pot, the water closet, and all of these things, the plate, the, the, the teacup, all of these things emphasize individual self-control, individual display, individual sophistication. Now, a great example where almost every single one of these things comes together are the social clubs of the early 18th century. In some of these, men gathered together, sharing the cost of a subscription to a, you know, early 18th century news sheet, and every time the news sheet came out, they would get together, read it out loud, and then discuss the topics politely, all while drinking coffee and tea out of porcelain cups. 
As I say that, it sounds a bit twee, but the alternative is really different. And this new form of politeness is so much closer to how we deal with our lives today than the alternative. Consider the alternative, hanging out at the alehouse and getting drunk and talking about purely local concerns. Which world do we live in more? The polite world of the coffee house or the impolite world of the alehouse? Well, certainly, I think most of us live in the coffeehouse world. Now, of course, there were criticisms. One criticism was that it made men less manly. And this was because politeness was an attitude that was open to women. It was oftentimes even gendered female. Women could, could be as easygoing, as polite, as open, as kind, as sympathetic as men could. And in certain ways, this attitude fit more with female standards of gender behavior than with male. The idea that you should always be looking towards the pleasure and comfortability of the people who you were interacting with. But another big thing was that politeness was hypocritical. The idea of politeness is that you should fit the display of yourself to always be pleasing other people around you. If you had disagreements, you expressed them ironically or softly or didn't express them at all or expressed them in private without, you know, letting your interlocutors save face. But this generated worries. If everybody was polite, then who was going to be true? If everybody was polite, how could you tell that a person was being real? If everybody was polite, how could you tell who was your friend and who was your enemy? The solution was sentiment. The idea was that with a sentimental person, they had developed their inner feelings so much that they couldn't hide it anymore. Their inner selves were so virtuous that it caused their emotions to overflow and overcome them in times of intensity and to show constantly their true colors. You knew that a sentimental person was their, your friend because they couldn't help themselves from crying or smiling or laughing when you were around. You could tell that a sentimental person was troubled by the plight of people whose plight it was to be troubled by because they would cry and they would sigh and they would make visible and public displays of their emotions overcoming themselves. This is very different from the 17th century way of uh, being. The 17th century idea was, look, you just let yourself be yourself. If you're angry, maybe just be angry. The 18th century idea of sentiment was that you developed yourself so much that your emotions themselves were moderated, that they themselves were always virtuous. It was safe for the sentimental person to show their true colors because their true colors were good. And this helped to deal with another problem of the anonymous urban city. People in that city needed ways of defining themselves. The polite person is one of a crowd. They're always effaced. They're always thinking about the other person. But that's not satisfying. We want to be unique. We want to be seen. We want to have status and recognition. A sentimental person stands out of the crowd. We can imagine them on some, you know, woodland clearing weeping over a doe. 
Now quickly I want to show how these ideas of politeness and sentiment move on through the 19th and the 20th centuries. So politeness we can imagine as something urban. Sentiment we can imagine as something more domestic. It happens in homes, it happens in uh, small groups of private parties. And this closing off of the public continues in the 19th century. The 19th century model of masculinity is no longer public urban politeness. Instead, it is individualistic masculinity, manliness. Virtue is something that becomes the holding of individual men who develop this virtue through individual study and individual physical exertion. Think of muscular Christianity. Think of how we train young boys to be young boys. Young boys work hard by themselves. They work out, they lift weights, they run, they give themselves self-control. And it is this self, this virtuous self, that becomes the important site of masculinity in the 19th century for men. For women, of course, the site of virtue is no longer the uh, display of public politeness and no longer even the uh, domestic display of careful sentiment. Instead, female virtue becomes based on uh, uh, creating Christian morality within the home. It's no longer even about the woman, it's about what the woman does for the family. And today, uh, we do have politeness, of course. But we have a number of other kind of virtuous modes that I think are far more important. The two big ones uh, that probably are going to uh, strike the most of a chord with my listeners are coolness and irony. And in these we can see kind of mixtures of sentiment and politeness and masculinity and domesticity. So coolness, imagine a cool person. Are they with people? Are they alone? Coolness is something that is deeply individualistic. Maybe we can think of it as politeness mixed with sensibility. It is polite in that it is focused on keeping a stable and cool attitude in the face of the crowd. The cool person does what they want no matter what other people think of them. They're not bothered by the haters. Let the haters hate. But on the other hand, even though the cool person is deeply individualistic, they are still attentive to the crowd. The cool person is so attentive to the crowd that they no longer need to attend to the crowd to follow what the crowd does. The cool person adopts the latest styles without caring. The cool person is able to keep up with the constant stream of fashion without ever opening a fashion magazine. I just woke up this way, the cool person says. I am effortlessly and constantly in touch with the rest of the, the people. And let's think of irony too, because irony is maybe the other dominant mode of contemporary Western life, and it is the exact opposite of politeness. Irony is focused on others, like politeness, but whereas politeness tries to always agree with the other person and express one's uh, a, a true self or true feelings only in accord with other people, Irony is attentive to other people and makes fun of them. It is snarky and confrontational. 
And just like politeness has the charge leveled against it that it always hides the true self, so too does irony make us unable to ever express our true selves. They have similar kinds of cultural critique leveled against them. And if you think that this is just UC Berkeley cultural posturing that doesn't really matter, I want to tell you that these have intense influences on culture, politics, and society. So look at our politics today. Obama was the cool president. He was always trying to be effortless. He was always somebody who seemed one step ahead. He was unflappable, maybe to a fault. Trump, on the other hand, is ironic. He understands what's going on, but he will subvert the message of the mainstream to express the things that he believes that he should express. Trump followers express themselves in ironic, sometimes offensive memes, in jokes, in jests. And Hillary Clinton, for all of her faults, was trying to be polite. She was trying to be accommodating. She was trying to knit together a society based on civility. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all the things that you do with podcasts that you like. Maybe contact me and tell me you're listening. Um, I have to thank Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, check out the website at historian.live, and I will see you guys tomorrow when I think we're going to be talking about democracy. Very exciting. Don't miss it. Bye.